Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to episode number 62 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. You can reach me at uh, the Real 27 Guy or Basketball Card Fanatic on Instagram. You can also email me um, at basketballcardfanatic at gmail.com. Welcome again, guys. It's great to have you back. You're, you're going to think this is crazy because I just did an episode last week, right? Um, I've been on a little bit of a hiatus trying to get better, trying to um, create time wherever I can and cut the fat um, out of my life, but really just wanted to do a, wanted to do an episode today. Um, really grateful for the feedback on last week's episode. I think other than my episode about how I built my collection, last week's probably the one that I've gotten the most positive feedback on. Last week's episode is about an experience. If you haven't checked it out, it's about an experience that I had in 2015 and 2016 with uh, the greatest find, the greatest collection find of my life. And it's a collection that, um, that uh, allowed me to do some really cool things and acquire some of the best cards that I have. Um, but it's, it's an amazing story. And so um, I, think that, I think that the response has been amazing and uh, I would encourage you to listen to it. I want to say a couple other things before we get into the main thing today. And our main thing today is um, I've asked the community for 10 things that they wanted me to talk about. I waited a couple hours. We got more than 10, but, uh, but I've got 10 questions written down here. And so um, we're going to cover those. Before we get to that, I want to say a few quick, a few quick things. The first thing that I want to say is a big thank you to the sponsors of Basketball Card Fanatic magazine. Um, we signed a couple of big ones in this last 10 days, guys, and you'll see that if you, um, you know, if you see the, if you order the magazine, you'll see a couple big ads that will pop out to you. And um, those entities are, along with the other paid sponsors that we have, are what have enabled us to, you know, make the magazine what it is thus far. And so, just want to give them a huge thanks um, for believing in us and um, being willing to become sort of be part of our team. I also want to thank uh, Jeremy Lee. Um, he's Jay Lee uh, on on Instagram, and Jeremy, um, I think it's Jay Lee underscore Sports Cards Live is his full name. Uh, but you guys all know who he is. He did a show with Nat, um, and uh, and that with Nat Turner, I should say. That show I think turned out extremely well. Um, I'm only, I'm about three-fourths of the way into it. He does that show live on YouTube. You can also watch it on Twitter and um, in some other places. Um, and and he just does such a fantastic job, guys. Jeremy is a, is a tremendous interviewer and asset to the community. And he's he, he interviews, like, he's interviewed just, just about anybody who, who you'd ever want to interview in the world of sports cards. And so... Um, I wish I could join his show live because I think that's a, a better experience, but my life doesn't uh, enable me to do that very often. His shows are usually around the time that I put my kids to bed, so I can't jo usually join him, but I'll listen to it on Pat podcast afterwards, and and uh, that, that interview is a big deal. So congratulations to him, and thanks again to Nat for being willing to take the time to, to do that show with Jeremy. I also want to tell you guys that um, we sent... Uh, this morning, we sent approval 
to the printers uh, for issue 10 of Basketball Card Fanatic. So although I already had a couple of people who messaged and said, hey, can I still get issue 10? Uh, they, they asked this morning. I'm so sorry. You can't. Uh, issue 10 is has been ordered. We only order the number of magazines. And let me back up a little bit. Actually, let me let me like let you guys see behind the curtain on this a little bit. One of the things that's hard um, about running the magazine is um, you don't know how much. I kind of don't know how much to like let people know what's going to be in the next issue. In some ways, I want it to be a surprise for subscribers, right? I want them to be able to get it and not know what's going to be in it. I don't want. I want them to not, you know, just sort of open it the same way you would open a pack of cards, or. Um, you know, a graded card reveal or something. You open it and you get the surprise of it, and that's part of the fun of it. Um, and at the same time, I realize that there are people who would like to know what's in each issue to decide whether they would like to buy that. So it's hard for me to know, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth on what, what we should do and how we should go about it. Um, but what I will tell you is um, we're trying to, we're trying a new thing where we're not gonna really let people know what's in the magazine before we print it. And so the only people who will get the printed copy will be those who are subscribed to the magazine, um, you know, before it before it is actually released and printed. So, you know, this month we did a ton of work. It's I do think it's our best issue yet. Um, I think the the three person team. Um, I think all of us agree with that. Um, that we we think it's the best designed. We think it's the best written. We think the interview at the front is one that people are going to be really interested to, to read. And what I'd love to do is I'd love to tell you guys all about what what's all going to be in it. But but I do think that we, you know, that kind of takes away from the people who are subscribing to it. So um, so just know that the interview is really good this month and that, the, that, that all of the community pieces that come after and Kevin's design work as always, all of it is really fantastic. So. Um, but we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about what's what's in the magazine before it's distributed this month. Having said that, you know why am I going through all this stuff right now? Why am I telling it all to you if you can't order it anyways? Having said that, the digital uh, the digital magazine, if you want to you know read it on um, you know your your tablet, your computer, on your phone, um, you know we've designed it in a way where all where it's it's you know. It's still a wonderful experience if you want to read it digitally. I, per, I prefer it via print, um, and and print is blowing up a lot faster right now than than digital is. But but the digital is actually still outselling the print. Um, it's just that we've been doing the print for a lot less time. So most people who are subscribing at this point are subscribing to the print magazine. But um, but if you would like issue ten um, or you know any past issues or any future issues, you can get them all in digital. Um, if you'd like any future issues in print, please order and please subscribe prior to us distributing. Um, we did send out some some old ones historically for the last few issues, but it just got really hard to like, you know, order an extra 20 to have sent to me and then, you know, those 20 go real quick and then you're left with like people who are like, oh, I thought you said I could get this. And it's just more complicated. So to make this, to make the process a lot simpler, we're not going to order those extra ones anymore. And so, you know, that's, that will be the end of the print run. We only ran, you know, the ones that we did and, and all other ones will, you know, all other copies that go out will be digital. And like I said, that's the more popular version right now anyways. So 
Um, but for those of you who want print, please order prior to the next magazine. Okay, so that gives you guys a little bit of, 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 what, uh, of what's going on with the magazine. I won't talk about it anymore other than just to say, I, again, I think that the issue 10 is going to be the most popular to date. And I really am grateful to the sponsors, to the, um, you know, to the people who have written pieces, to all of the subscribers and all those of you guys who are, who are supporting the magazine. Uh, this, is a, this is a really great issue. So if you see it, your LCS too. Um, we sent a bunch to, to LCSs this, this month. Um, we'd, love to, you know, we'd love to have any LCSs subscribe to an in-store in uh, countertop issue. And we have a bunch of them at this point too that are subscribing to issues that are for sale. Most of the shops have been selling them pretty well. Um, so yeah, give, give your LCS a check if you didn't get one in person because there's a good chance that you'll still be able to get it at your LCS. Okay, all right, that's enough on the magazine. Today what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about um, what you guys wanted to talk about. Um, so I put out a quick question a couple hours ago. I'm recording, by the way, today's June 8th. I put out a recording or a, uh, a question on my Instagram and it just said, hey, do you, have any, you know, do you have any questions or anything that you'd like for me to talk about on the podcast? Um, I love discussing the things that you want, you know, that you, that you are interested in too, and, and love seeing like the variety of the different types of questions that, that come across. Um, and so I'm excited to be able to, you know, share share some of these things with you, and I'll give shouts out to the to the people who asked. There there were a couple questions that were asked multiple times, and I haven't written down the users' names on those, and I'll I'll answer those at the at the end. But I've got ten questions to run through first that I think you guys will find uh, at least somewhat interesting. But I'll try to go rapid fire because I don't want to be here for I don't want this this recording to be more than about another twenty minutes long. So we'll go fast. About two two minutes a question or less. So question number one, and this is just in the order that they came to me, um, by the way, unless they were asked more than once, then I'll, then I'll answer those questions at the end. So question number one came from Fourth Floor Cards on Instagram. He says, thoughts on PCing a player who doesn't play for your uh, favorite team or nor is a goat. So what I think this user is getting at is he's, he's asking, do you, do you think that, you know, do, do you think it's interesting to, to collect somebody who's not on my favorite team or who's not, you know, recognized by, by everyone as one of the greatest of all time? What I would say to that is actually some of my most interesting and fun experiences in collecting have been exactly that. Um, I think back to the late 90s when I started uh, collecting Kevin Garnett, I became a massive fan of him through the collecting process. He wasn't on my team, but I liked how he played. I liked his story, and so I decided to collect him. And I had a wonderful experience with him. I ended up selling those cards along, you know, along the way. But it's one of those great regrets because Garnett ended up being one of my favorite players throughout his whole time with Minnesota. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's I think that that's a really cool. Um, I think that's a really cool idea and and, uh, and thing to do. I also think you know. A lot of people are really focused on this idea of like making money with with collecting. Um, you can you can do that like by doing what you're saying here. You know, if you can find a rookie who's underappreciated or a young guy who's underappreciated for another team that you've watched a lot, and your goal is just to make money on that player, 
Um, a lot of times you've got to do exactly what you're saying here and collect something that is really, you know, different and out there, not part of your favorite team and, you know, not somebody who everybody else is collecting. So, yeah, I think I think it's a cool idea. All right. Nice looking cardboard. My friend asks the question, would love to hear about your... Um, I wrote these down by hand, and my and by hand, and my handwriting is terrible. Terrible. Would love to hear about your experiences from national, if you've ever, if you've had any. Yeah, dude, I could tell you a lot of experiences from national. Um, I, I haven't. I'd like to claim that I've been to a ton. There's a lot of guys who are real national experts. They, you know, they have been to a ton of them. They have. They can tell you, you know, where each year happened, and like, or where, you know, what the location was, and what they liked, and what they didn't like. Um, I'm, I think, a lot more simple, um, and I've only been to a couple. But what I would tell you is this: I loved both of the nationals that I went to, and for for um, you know for different reasons. The first national, um, I didn't buy a single card, and I didn't even make a trade. But I got to meet a lot of people who um, were people that I, you know, considered friends. People who I, I felt like I was close to and that I felt like I'd known for a long time. Um, I was able to find a, a friend there, um, a card that, that he, that was one of the best cards that he purchased at the National. And finding that for him was really cool for me. Um, I was able to, you know, build relationships, go out to dinner with people and, you know, meet meet people who I had known for a long time. And the other thing is, you know, you get to know such a d diverse group of people. People from the forums who um, I hadn't um, had super positive experiences who came up to me and who were like, hey, I just wanted to talk to you and let you know that like I love your presence on the forums. And like people who were super, super positive, um, even though like in, in other situations I hadn't felt found that they were super positive. Uh, all, of, all of that experience was great. Um, I didn't buy anything though, like I said. I didn't have a wonderful experience that first year with actually finding something that I really wanted. Um, so, you know, take, take, that, take that for what it's worth. The second year kind of gave me, was even better than the first year. The second year, my highlight of the show would be, um, I, what I would tell you is, is probably my, my, my favorite part, was when, I think I was only there one night if I remember right. And um, so this was 2019, the last national that, that happened, because obviously we didn't have one last year for 2020. There was a, a, a night where I ended up hanging out with a few people. Um, I ended up hanging out with uh, Triple J underscore Gambino from, from Instagram. Um, Wax Museum podcast, Kyle, you guys all know him. Excuse me. And uh, G, uh, the Lucky Show, 05, and G's good friend who he brought with him to the show. And the five of us just totally just hung out and talked cards and, you know, ate dinner and stuff for, for hours. And it was just so cool because, like, these were guys that, like, in the case of uh, uh, JJJ Gambino, like, I didn't know him um, when, when I went to the show. I had seen his, like, his his uh, name on um, the forums a couple times, but I didn't know who he was really. And then it turned out that he and I have like a ton of similar tastes and cards. And so we talked forever about this. And by the end of the show, I felt like he was an old friend. Um, and I'd talked to Kyle and G, you know, hundreds of times. And so being able to hang out with them was just really cool. Cause, cause you know, I'd talked to him so many different times. 
But um, but uh, I'm being a little long-winded here. What I would tell you, though, again, about that show, I did one deal. I did it with James. Uh, NBA Game Issued is his, his name on Instagram. Uh, he and I did a trade that he probably won in retrospect, but I got a card that I really wanted and had been looking for for a long time. And those are the sort of trades that you don't mind making, right, where you give up a card that you're willing to give up. Mine was a, a Jordan first day issue uh, or, or one of a kind, I can't remember, one of those two parallels from, from Stadium Club number to 150 in a BGS 9. Great card, wonderful card. But again, I had so many high-end Jordan cards at the, car, at the time and I was able to let that go and grab a Lillard flawless autographed rookie, which was still encased, which is what I wanted. It's number to 25. Um, and so that was cool. Um, I don't remember if I did any other deals. I, I kind of feel like I did... I almost traded a card um, to Card Collector 291 that I was glad that I didn't trade because I ended up moving it in a, in a better deal. I was this close, like this close to buying the Luka, Luka Optics Superfractor or Gold Vinyl uh, Rookie, the one of one. That would have been you know one of the biggest cards I've ever owned, if not the biggest card. And I actually tried to go back and get it. Um, ironically, tried to have uh, Card Collector 291 to go back and get it for me, but it had sold like in the previous half an hour. So, and it was for guys pennies on the dollar to what that's worth now. So my experience from the national was wonderful from a perspective of like building relationships with people and um, you know getting to know people. You know, I that's what I loved. But as far as actually buying cards, it wasn't the best. You know, I, I find more uh, more opportunity to buy the things that I want probably on eBay and and uh, you know over the internet. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. Okay, that was way more than two minutes. I'm not doing a good job keeping on, on task. So I'll, I'll keep going here. Five Star Collector on Instagram asks, thoughts on player-worn versus game-worn patches? I have strong feelings about this. And so uh, this is one that I wanted to talk about. In my collection today, off the top of my head, I think I only have two player-worn cards. So when he says player-worn, what he means is there's language on the back of cards that indicates that a card was actually worn in a game by the player or that the card was just worn by the player like so that they could cut it up and put it onto cards, right? So when you're, when you're, if you want something that was worn in a game, what you want to do is get a card that on the back it says game-worn, right? Um, so... I um, I only have a couple player-worn cards, and the reason that I own them is they're of one of my favorite players, and they are his his rookie card, his his RPA. So I think I have two RPAs of Rudy Gobert. Um, I don't have any RPAs of Donovan Mitchell, even though I love Donovan, and actually I would love to add some of those. I had a great RPA, like one of the best RPAs of Giannis that I sold, um, and I've had a ton of. You know, you name the guy, and I've probably had it. I don't love it, though, because I don't love that the card is, like... I don't love that the card, that the RPA is, like, really, like... What's the word that I'm looking for? Um, I don't want to say forced, because that's not fair. It, they, they have such a place because they're the rarest, um, you know, widely considered best, most iconic rookie card. But there's this part of me that looks at it that sees a piece of the uniform that that I know wasn't worn in a game, and I know a lot of people sort of just assume that it was worn in a game, or you know, other people who, who just don't care but just sort of accept it. Like to me, it's it, the word is contrived. Like it, it just, it feels forced, it feels contrived. It, it feels 
less awesome than I'd like it to be. But in a lot of cases, it's the rarest and one of the best rookie cards. And so a lot of people really, really love it. I would actually prefer in my collection, and my collection shows this, by the way, I would appreciate the card that's rarer, that comes from an important brand that is, um, that's really good looking and, and that's different. Um, and sometimes it's not from a, you know, not from a set that like is as well known, but anyway, I'm, I'm diverging from the question a little bit to go back to go back a little bit. The cards that are game worn though mean a lot because if you could look at that thing and you could know that was worn in a game by the player, that adds an element to it that I think is really, really cool. And so, you know, again, if I look at my collection and, and, and what matters to me, um, some of my very best cards, probably something like eight of my top 20 cards in my collection are cards that are game that have game used pieces of the uniform in them. Um, and so again, that's kind of why I stay away from RPAs uh, more than I more than I used to. I used to be into the RPA thing a lot, but now I think I'd rather have something that is really cool and high end of a player. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I was thinking uh, I probably shouldn't say this but I'm going to say it. I was looking for a high-end Zion card. I thought it would be cool to have one. And when I went to look for the high-end Zion card, I looked at Gala, number to eight, my favorite old-time set. People, some people still know me as the Gala guy. I only own one Don, Donovan Mitchell card, by the way. It's his Gala rookie. Um, so I still love Gala because it's, it's rare, and I think it's really good-looking. Um, you know, it's number to eight. It has no parallels. Uh, but back to the Zion, the other one that I looked at was the one and one um, similar actually to the to the gala in appearance in that it's like got a refractory sort of finish, but it doesn't have, um, you know, but it's not a chrome card. So, um, and I love chrome type cards too, by the way. I just, I like that, that the one that the ones that aren't chrome are maybe, I feel like more underappreciated. People just love the chrome so much. It, they probably love it more than I do. So, you know, for me, um, the reason that I've decided not to focus on the RPAs is because I don't love that they're not, you know, game-used jerseys for the most part. And so, you know, having said that, if you want the rarest and what is largely considered a player's best rookie in most cases and by most people, you kind of have to go with a player-worn card. Um, in the rare instance that you have a rookie who, um, who has... Uh, game-worn cards in his rookie season, I think those cards become an interesting option. It, I think historically, if somebody's ever had a flawless RPA, that RPA is actually game-used. But still, if you look at like a national treasure, so Zion's a good example, or Anthony Davis is a good example. Anthony Davis has a couple of cards in flawless where they're, where they're game-used patches. Um, but those cards don't even sniff the price that a national treasure rookie does. And what the irony to there, there to me is the the um, national treasures card uh, is is significantly easier to find and more plentiful. It's not a rarer card either, so it's not rarer. Um, it doesn't have a real you know uniform in it. I don't think it's as good a looking card, and it's worth more than the card that has an autograph and a patch on it from his rookie year out of flawless. It's not exactly apples to apples though because that card at a flawless isn't actually from a base set and some people would say that it's not actually an RPA because um, you know it, it doesn't have other rookies in the set and like I said it's not from the base set so I could go on and on for that with that uh, specific topic for hours but what I would tell you is um, you know 
is what I always tell you, which is to buy what you like. And for me, I like game worn and I don't really love non game worn unless the card is really significant in a way that's like important to my collection. So really good question, five star collector. All right, number four, question number four is from 77 NCAA champs. He says, looking toward the 2021 NBA draft. Um, you know, this is one of the really fun things about our hobby is every time there's a new draft, I feel like collectors like have to create a strategy. They have to decide what they're going to do with the next year. And this is something that I used to do. I remember, you know, basically like all the years in the early 2000s, I remember thinking like, okay, what, what am I going to get here? How am I going to think about this player? I remember when 2000, the 2005 draft happened. It was the only time in really my whole life where the Jazz had um, a, a very early first-round pick that they quote-unquote earned. They were so bad the, the year before that they had a really high pick. They had the number six overall pick in 2005 that they were able to trade with a couple other picks up to get the number three pick. And with the number three pick, they took Darren Williams. And uh, I just wanted a Darren Williams exquisite rookie so bad. You know, I was a little bit younger, and I didn't have the ability to just go out and spend a ton of money, but I really wanted a Darren Williams uh, exquisite rookie. What's interesting about that, though, is if you, if you look back at that time, exquisite was the last or one of the last products that came out that year. So even when I was in my early 20s, I realized, you know what? I don't actually want to necessarily jump into the early products. And so I, I didn't. The irony now, though, is that some of the early products are actually some of the best products um, in terms of long-term um, appreciation. Uh, no, long appreciation is the wrong word because I'm not talking about gains. I'm talking about like um, long, long-term importance. So, like the one that comes to my mind is obviously Prism. Prism's an early product, um, but it's also considered, especially you know, for rookies it's considered one of the most important cards. You can't really wait if you want to if you want to buy a gold rookie number 10 of one of the really key rookie uh, players, you can't really wait because if you wait, they're going to increase in value so much. You know, if like assuming assuming that the player is going to be a big time player, you know, assuming you're collecting somebody who you, who you think, "Oh, this guy has the chance to just do crazy things in the league." And and I believe in his potential. You can't wait to, to go get that, that gold card, usually. You kind of need to get it as soon as you can. But in general, in answer to this question, I personally like to wait. Um, I still buy a lot of modern cards, but I usually buy them two to three years after they came out because I want to make sure that it's something that I feel really good about. I'll give you a little example, actually. Um, I had a chance um, a little while ago to see a 2017 Noir uh, what's it called? Spotlight signatures in person. I saw it at a show a little while ago, and when I saw it, I, I shouldn't say a little while ago because I saw it like I think I saw it in 2019. I think it was actually at the national, so it was it was good good time after that. I saw a Joel Embiid. I remember I actually looked at it on the guy's table for a while and had him show it to me, and I thought, gosh, this is such a good looking card. And then I was able to trade a Dwayne Wade autograph from a, from another set for a Shaq out of spotlight or noir spotlight signature and when i got it i was like you know i actually really like this card i did the trade because i thought i was just gonna move the shack to somebody else but then i got it and, and i was like you know what i kind of like this card i don't i don't want to get rid of this and since then i saw carmelone pop on ebay and i got that and like 
it came out years ago, but I like it. Like, I know I like it. I think the cards are really sharp. I'd love to pick up a Kobe, um, the one where he's, you know, where you see him from the back. Uh, SP Authentic uh, 84, that Joe and I have, have been talking for a while. He he was able to pick one of those up, and I've wanted to pick one up. Unfortunately, they're probably too expensive for me now. He was smarter than me and, and was able to get one when they were less expensive, but now the price they are is probably too much for me. Um, not because, you know, I could probably figure out a way to do it, but it's just a lot of money. I, I would have felt a lot more comfortable back when it was, when I was, you know, picking up other Kobe stuff. Um, but but his, especially his high-end, like, autographs and his uh, his key insert tech card, like, some of that stuff's gone up so much that it's kind of become problematic to buy as much of as, as I would like to. So, um, you know, this, this question about... Um, you know, this this question about like looking forward to to the draft I, I went on a tangent there with the with the noir but the point is I like waiting you know I like waiting and making sure that it's something that I like and that I want in my collection but having said all that I realize that a lot of the people who are listening to this are are people who who like to speculate on young players and it is so much fun to do that um, it's fun to do that because it feels like you own a part of the player. It feels like they become like an asset to you. And so when you watch them play, you feel like, you know, their performance can can really make you a lot of money. And in some cases, that's been really true, right? People have made a lot of money on players' performance. Uh, I did that on Anthony Davis back in 2013, and it was one of the most profitable things, or 20, 2014 or 2015, 2014. Um, you know, I made I made so much on him um, that it allowed me to um, you know do a lot of other great things in in the hobby. Uh, it was after he had a, a kind of so-so rookie year, and then he started playing so well in his second season. And I was like, oh man, I'm all in on this guy. But some people want to buy the guy like when he first comes out, right? And there's a couple of big big names at the at the top of the 2021 NBA draft. And, you know, there's a chance that one of them will be just a total superstar. I, again, just me, I, don't, I wait. And then I look for what I'm actually going to want to own in the long term. Um, but a lot of people, they, they really jump in. So what I would say to you is, you know, just realize that you have risk. And realize that, um, that you know, you're not guaranteed anything. Um, but... But have fun with it, you know? If it's something that you love to do, set a budget, figure out how much you're willing to spend on that particular player, figure out what you would like to own specifically of that player, which is hard to do because again, you don't know what products are actually going to be released during the year and you don't know what those products are gonna be or gonna look like. But figure out what your budget is, figure out what you want to own, um, you know, and then if as time goes by, you decide, oh, I made a mistake here, then, 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 you know, adjust, adjust accordingly. Maybe you'll have to increase your budget. Maybe you have to sell other things to get into it. Maybe you'll make a ton of money on the guy and you'll be able to buy more of the guy. You know, there's a million things that you can do. You can just riding the wave, the ups and downs of, of the player can be a lot of fun. You know, maybe you get into the player and then he gets hurt and his stuff goes down and so you feel compelled to get into the player a lot more. When I say get into, I'm speaking about it like a position, right? Like you're getting into the position of the player. And, and that's how I think about, 
you know, investing in rookies as I, or young players as I think about them like stocks. Um, and that, that line of thinking has been, you know, part, partly what has made the hobby just explode over the last 24 months. But I think people realize, and this is a, a later question that I'll get to, I think people realize there's not a perfect correlation between how a player plays and how their um, card values move. And uh, I think when you understand that and you, you see that so much more of it just has to do with how the market's moving, it makes you sort of question whether you um, whether that's something that, that is appealing long-term. To me, it's not appealing. But to me, there's a thousand other things about the card, um, you know, about the card hobby that are appealing. So I try to focus on those things that are appealing and are interesting to me. Um, so anyway, enough on that. Way more than my two minutes. Good question, 77 NBA champs. By the way, I would encourage you to give all these guys a follow who, who I'm asking, who, who are asking questions. I'm grateful for the questions and that you know, I could just put a post out there on Instagram and then a couple hours later, I got 10 questions to answer. Okay, number five uh, is from In Cardboard Veritas says, state of the vintage market, long-term growth, question mark, will it ever be as collectible as baseball? I'm kind of shortening the question a little bit, but that's that's basically what he said there. So, um, you know, he is um, so he is asking a question that I've actually gotten probably more than any other question, which is, Adam, what do you really think about vintage? And I think the reason that I get asked this type of question is that I'm a vintage basketball card collector, right? Like I love vintage basketball. Um, vintage basketball, I always describe as sort of my first love in the hobby because, um, you know, I think back to when I was seriously six or seven years old, we would go to our local card store and, you know, in one of the display cases, they had like this little dollar um, shelf. And this in this dollar shelf, you would have like um, guys who were common Utah jazz players from the 1970s that, that you could buy, you know, for a dollar or for two or three dollars or whatever. I remember buying a Leonard Truck Robinson New Orleans Jazz 1978 card, which is certainly not worth anything today, but I remember buying it as a kid and thinking it was so cool. It was a card that was older than me. It's a card that was, you know, of, of a guy who played for the Jazz before the Jazz moved to Utah. Um, it was of a guy who, like, had the most rebounds in Jazz history in a single game, even more than Carl Malone. And and I loved, I loved that. Um, I progressed, you know. 30 something years later to, to being somebody who, you know, I've got, I've got a 1971 tops Wilt Chamberlain PSA nine and uh, Lou Alcindor PSA nine and uh, Pete Maravich uh, autographed uh, PSA DNA. One of the nicest autographed Pete Maravich vintage cards that you'll ever see. I have a, an autographed Jerry West rookie. Um, that's beautiful and the autograph's perfectly blue and, and this, the card is centered. I have, um, some some really important, I should say really rare, but I would also consider important Wilt Chamberlain cards that you just never see pop up. I've got a, a Bird Russell, um, sorry, a Bird Magic Irving autographed PSA DNA rookie that's in um, X-Mint shape. And I've got a number of other vintage cards that I just love. Like I love vintage basketball. Okay, so let's start there and just know that I'm like totally um, a, f a fan when it comes to vintage basketball. You show me anything vintage basketball and I will have an opinion on it. Um, having said all of that, the growth 
that vintage basketball saw at the beginning of this year, um, as you can see, by the way, in looking at Basketball Card Fanatic Magazine, where we have an index of how the whole of the basketball card uh, vintage market is moving. The growth that we saw for the first couple months was, when you use the word ridiculous, it, it doesn't sound strong enough. It was not. It was not normal, guys. It's not normal to see an entire basket of assets double in a month or two. And so, you know, what I see, I see a lot of people who get into a market who are getting into it because they believe it has growth potential. If you ever find yourself in this hobby just getting into something because you believe it has growth potential, I would encourage you to ask yourself whether you actually like that thing. Um, you know, this sounds a lot like I, like I always talk about the whole buy what you like thing, but um, it really is true. You know, those people who just got into the vintage basketball market because they saw this tr tr tremendous growth potential, um, a lot of them, unfortunately, really got hammered this last couple of months when the market just absolutely took a bath. But if a market takes, a, if a market has increased by two and a half X in the course of a few months, and then it increases by 30%, or sorry, then decreases by 30%, it's still way up, right? If it goes up by one and a half and then it decreases by 30%, and these are, these are just estimates. I, I don't have the index in front of me right now. I should just grab my magazine and look at it. But, um, but you know, the, the vintage market um, has seen this variability that is not usual. And, and what is driving it, I believe, is the real investor mindset um, where people are coming in buying things that they just think could really go up a ton in value. And so they take something and they say, look, this is recognizable. You know, there, there, there aren't a lot of this. It's not a high population thing. I've got money to spend here. I'm going to spend it and let's see what happens. And then they see these other people doing it and there's these sudden giant built-in gains and then they keep doing it and all of a sudden millions of dollars have been spent. Like millions of dollars were spent on the vintage basketball market back early in the year. And then a couple months goes by and uh, a lot of people then realize, hey, I just kind of want my cash now. Well, when these movers are all moving in the same direction at the same time, that's when you see spikes and that's when you see giant dips. And people say, buy the dip. Like, it's just like this thing that is sort of this eternal law. It's not necessarily like a law. Things can go down and dip, and then you buy them, and then they dip again, and then they continue to dip, right? Like, things can increase and decrease dramatically in this market. And I never would have thought that about vintage basketball. But the investment dollars that showed up, the guys who just had hundred thousand bucks and wanted to buy something that they thought had long good long-term potential they came into this market and uh, when I say this market I mean the vintage basketball card market they came into it and they did some crazy things so huge shifts so ignoring that last year though and ignoring where prices currently are which I won't comment on um, what I would say is the vintage basketball card market is so cool and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Um, baseball uh, is, is, will always be better known because people collected, people actually collected these vintage baseball cards 
Not a lot of people actually collected the vintage basketball, right? People would still buy them for gum and whatever else, but not a lot of people were putting together sets. And certainly not as many cards um, survived. You know, go look at the population report of, of a baseball set and then look at it look at it for a basketball set. Here's an interesting uh, here's an interesting homework assignment for anyone who wants to try. Between PSA and DNA, how many Wilt Chamberlain cards total have been graded? Between P PSA and BGS, how many total Wilt Chamberlain cards have been graded? I'd be interested to know that. Obviously, I could go figure it out in a few minutes, but but what I think you'll find if you do that and then you compare it to, say, somebody like Mickey Mantle is that there are so few cards of the guys um, in, in the world of basketball because there was one set... The one set, you know, wasn't as, as highly collected. Much more, a higher percentage of the of the cards were destroyed. Much fewer cards were actually made. And uh, and then the other thing about basketball is you have these lar large periods of time where no major products were created. So again, for Wilt, he comes in the league I think in 1960 or 1959, and then he has a 1961 Fleer rookie. And then he doesn't have another mainstream card made until 1969 tops. And then he and then he has a couple of tall boys and then just a few more sets created until 73-74. He retires and or he goes and becomes quote a player coach in the ABA, which then ended up not happening, but he had a card made of that in 1974. So, you know, he basically has like I think it's five regulation size cards and two two tall boys. I think that's right. 69 and 70 are the tall boys. 61 um, 71, 72, 73, and 74, yeah, five five base cards, five regulation-sized base cards, and one of them, he's not even an active player any, anymore. So, you know, and a lot of players are like that. Jerry West is the exact same way. You know, Elgin Baylor's even fewer cards. Um, you know, look at a guy like Bill Russell. Bill Russell, we did a, uh, there's an awesome article, really well done article, I believe in issue three of Basketball Card Fanatic, where where um, like the three big Bill Russell cards, the three Bill Russell cards in existence are, um, you know, are uh, are highlighted. Like he only has three main issue cards, guys. It seriously, he didn't even make it to sixty nine tops. So he's got a fifty seven tops and two cards from sixty one Fleer. That's one of the best players of all time. Arguably the second greatest and most important player of all time has three total basketball cards. Are you kidding me? That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And they're not even in huge supplies either. Having said that, it's still not something that I collect, or th those ones aren't, because they are actually still relatively available. They're easy to find, and my general rule is if something is always accessible, it's not something that I want to own. Why are they always accessible though? I don't know. Why isn't it they're not like completely just being hoarded? I'm not sure, uh, but I do think that Look, I think I think they're super cool. I don't think they'll ever be as popular as the um, as the baseball counterparts um, because they weren't collected at the same time. But from a rarity perspective, you know, they're fantastic. It's it's always this calculation, the the supply and demand calculation, and vintage basketball has supply going for it. It just does. You would think that the demand should uh, should drive it, considering how. How um, you know how much basketball has blown up in the last few years? But people still have to want to own the card in the end. And what we're seeing is, you know, that that has sort of 
gone back and forth a little bit um, throughout the years. Okay. Gosh, I am just somebody who can't stop talking, guys. Let's go faster through these next few ones. So, oh, my handwriting is so bad. I think this the, the name on this is F-S-O-N-S-I-A-D-I-I-K-81. Just ask sticker autos versus on card. Yeah, um, I would... I am not interested in sticker autos personally, but if you are somebody who would like to own somebody's autograph and would like to have it, you know, be something that is, um, you know, that is um, authenticated and is, um, you know, is not as expensive and is more obtainable, like sticker autographs are some of the best options that, that exist out there. So, um, you know, like that, that may not have great, and people would say, well, Adam, you're an idiot. Why would you go out and buy, like, I don't actually own one. I don't have a, I don't have a, a sticker autograph. But if you are a collector who, who is more just after the autograph itself, and you just want to own the autograph so you can say, look, I've got this autograph here. Like, I think sticker options are a great option for lower end collectors. Um, but when it comes to, you know, what has retained value, what has been thought of as significant and truly valuable and wanted and in high demand over the years, you know the answer, right? It's all about on card. All right. Question number seven is from art.of.abrusian. Um, he says, have you noticed any increase in demand in, um, in card products of a player in an MVP or in a championship year? Um, you know, this is this a question. I think what he's asking here is like, if you look back historically, um, do you see players' cards having an increase in popularity in years where they did significant things? Because clearly, in the year where they're having a great season, their stuff jumps in popularity. But looking back, like let's say Michael Jordan was an MVP for these three specific years, are his cards more collectible during those years? Or in the years that he won championships, are they more collectible during those years? I think that's what he's asking. And honestly, the answer to that question, I believe, is no. Um, some people try to sell that, and they try to say, hey, this was a championship year, or this was, a, this was an MVP year. But as a, as a collector, I don't even care. What I do care about is whether the player was active. Whether a player is active, like actually like playing when that card is made or retired is a huge deal. Um, I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, I have, I mean, I'll, give, I'll give you a perfect example. My, in my collection, I have a couple of cards from uh, 2012 Prism um, that I haven't talked as much about. One is a Carl Malone. It's a gold uh, number to 10. And another is a Kevin Garnett number to 10. And Kevin Garnett and Carl Malone are two of my favorite players ever, right? But the Kevin Garnett card is is really an important card. And it's really an important card because it's it's his first prism card. And you're like, well, Carl Malone's first prism card. Okay, that's true. Um, but Kevin Garnett was still an active player for the Boston Celtics. And so, and I, I if I remember right, I think that's his only Boston Celtic prism card. I think he actually ended up moved, leaving that year. Um, so, so Garnet has one card where he's an active Celtic in prison. And, and you know, forget the Celtic stuff for a second. Carl Malone's first prison card, he, he's not active, right? He, he had retired eight years previous to that. 
Well, the Garnett card, um, in my opinion, becomes part of his, um, I like this word that I've heard used before, it becomes part of his canon. It's, uh, it becomes part of his collection from when he from when he started his career to when he ended his career. And if you look from 1995 to whatever it was, 2015 or 2016, like those those 20 years were, where he had cards being produced, those are the really important key cards that become part of his canon. And the 2012 gold prism of his is a really important card to that canon. And to me, it's a really important card. It's a card that I wouldn't want to move. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, again, talking about another card that I own is that Carl Malone card. Carl Malone's my favorite player, literally my favorite player ever. I, I just loved Carl Malone growing up and um, grateful that we got to watch him play for 19 years here, 18 years here, and, and almost never miss a game and just play his heart out for us and try to go win us a championship, but um, I digress. Carl Malone's 2012 Prism card. Still a great card, especially the gold. There's only 10 of them, right? I love it. It's probably one of my best 40 or 50 cards, 60 cards in my collection. Um, it doesn't matter as much. He'd been out of the league for a long time. It's not really part of his canon. It's still a great card. Again, I, it's like fairly high on my list. I still love it. I'm still not like trying to move it or anything like that. But it doesn't compare to the Garnet, right? It just it just doesn't even it just doesn't even compare to it. So. You know, as I think about, as I relate this back to you know this question, like MVP or or not, or whether they won the championship that year, whatever, I just don't think that matters. Um, it, it, I'm sure there's some people who care about it. I'm sure there's other people who would like people to care about it because it would make their cards worth more. But to me, as a collector, I don't care. I will never care. It will never make any difference to me whether you won an MVP that season or or you didn't. What will matter is if the card is part of your canon and. Um, and I think that, that that has proven out true as the years have gone by. If, if a card is a post-career card, it is not viewed in the same way. There are times with this where, where the lines get blurred, though, because like I said, the Garnett, I, I should look it up real quick, but I think, I can't remember if Garnett left, left for Brooklyn in 2012-13 or 2013-14, but there's a chance that the card was made of him in 2012 after he had actually already moved on to Brooklyn um, or as he was being moved to Brooklyn. I'm not actually sure about that. Um, what I do know is that he was still active, right? So anyway, there's more that I can say there, but I'm being long-winded again. Okay, this is probably a good moment to also shout out something that I saw today on um, on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, I saw a post by Darren Ravel of ESPN, and I saw our friend Kyle from Wax Museum comment on it, and I commented on it. Um, Darren, in fact, I'm going to look it up real quick. I'm going to... Uh, I actually already did look it up and had it ready to go. Darren said, Kevin Durant is on fire, yet his rookie card, according to Slab Stocks data, is below where it was six months ago. Let me start over. Kevin Durant is on fire, right? He's obviously the on favorite to, to win the championship right now. And if not, you know, if you don't believe he's going to win the championship, that's fine. But Vegas certainly does. So Kevin Durant is on fire, yet his rookie card, according to Slab Stocks data, is below where it was six months ago. As I've continued to say, the idea that rookie cards are direct corollaries to a player's performance is dangerous and simply not true. I think, I think he's a little dramatic at the end of this, the idea of being dangerous. I mean, you can certainly make a case that that's true, but um, 
but it, it, it seems a little bit scary to me, a little bit too scary of, of a post. His point, though, is, is spot on. And it is the idea that, um, that I think what he's trying to get at here is that people have wanted to equate performance with um, games and cards for a long time. Well, that certainly wasn't true as the whole market was increasing over the last year, and regardless of who you were, your cards were going up in value. And then when the whole market decreases in value, it's also clearly not true. Just having a guy who has a card who, or who, who's, who's, who's playing well or, or succeeding does not mean that you will have an increase in value. What matters infinitely more than that is where you bought the card and what somebody's willing to pay for it. And people aren't necessarily willing to pay more just because the guy's playing well. Sometimes all of the activity in a market is because people want to own the card um, because they think that player is going to win. They just want it because they think it's going to increase in value. If the entire body of collectors of a given asset is only buying into something because they think it will increase in value, and there isn't an end user, an end person who wants to collect or own the card, then that card and its market is a bubble. It does not last forever, guys. Um, and, and it can it can just get destroyed. And not every player, or not, you know, players don't play forever. Players stop playing, and when they stop playing, you know, if that's where all their value is in the in the speculation of whether they're gonna win or not, then the, the cards are gonna decrease in value. What I would suggest and what I've tried to focus on is buying cards of players that I want to own for the long term. That doesn't mean that I haven't capitalized on a bubble here or there. I certainly have. Um, but you have to be careful because a lot of times you try to capitalize on a bubble, then something doesn't go quite right, and suddenly you're left holding a, a loss. And and so, you know, again, that's not how I collect anymore. But, uh, but you know, this comment from, from Kyle that I saw that was sort of related to this art dot of Abruzian's uh, uh, question I thought was interesting. So question number eight, Tough Times Cards says, um, oh my goodness, oh, my handwriting is so bad. It says, should flawless just be more, uh, should flawless cost more, I think, or sorry, should just be uh, encased cards. Um, the price uh, should should dictate that. And what he's saying is, these cards are so expensive, why don't they just put everything in, in a case? Um, I actually started thinking that I didn't want to talk about this question, and then I started, and then I, then I thought about all the things that I wanted to say about it, and suddenly I realized I could write like a book about, about how I think about encased cards. <laughs> um, so let me, let me try to distill it down to a couple thoughts. In general, I actually don't like encased cards, which is ironic because my favorite Panini product of all time, Eminence, is all encased cards. Um, so in general, I don't like them because I think that cards should have to like be circulated to, um, to either maintain or not maintain their condition properties that are part of why they gain or lose value. Right? A card that has been in circulation but has never been touched is, is really interesting. Right? It's, uh, it's an appealing aspect of the card. But if a card is just uncirculated, meaning, meaning that it sat in the case since it came out, then it doesn't have that same aspect, and I think that hurts it. 
But while I say that, the other thing that then that comes to my mind is what I love about uncirculated cards, and this is one of the things that I loved about Eminence when it, when it came out, is that uncirculated cards have a protection against things like, um, you know, cards being altered, including patches and autographs being altered. Both patches and autographs are two of the main attributes that are altered on cards. I don't know if, if those two things are altered even more than like like trimming, you know, even like more than the edges. But the sense that I get is that people don't pay enough attention to autograph alterations. Having a card that's encased by the company adds a layer of protection. And, um, you know, as long as that, that company can, can do something with the case that makes it um, impossible to get the card out, alter the card, and then get it back in the case, then the case actually is providing you security that the card is what you think you're buying. And I love, I mean, I love that about encased cards. So, you know, that's what I do like, but then there's this other thing that I don't like. In regards to the question, um, you know, I don't think that price point really should determine anything. Um, if it was me, what I would say, I would love for, you know, the card companies to do is I would love for them to produce cards that weren't um, alterable in terms of the patch and the autograph and that there was a database that existed that showed those cards, especially the very big, you know, autograph patches and patch cards. Um, I'd love to be able to go and see those um, somewhere where I could feel like they were, um, you know, where I, could, where I could make sure that they were legit. So, good question. All right. Number nine, curation underscore cardboard says, can you talk about the current market for Derek Rose? He says, um, what do you think his legacy will be? You know, for a lot of us, I think we've felt for a long time like Derek Rose's unfortunate legacy was he was going to be the only MVP who didn't make the Hall of Fame. But as we get closer to the end of his career, I'm not sure he's not going to make the Hall of Fame. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. He obviously had such an incredible um, collegiate uh, career. Um, I think he, do I remember him hitting a game winner like towards the end of the of the championship game and um, you know for Memphis and I believe also like as a guy who's a freshman who's playing you know and going and winning a championship like that that's pretty rare uh, so he's got that going for him because remember there is no NBA Hall of Fame there's only the basketball Hall of Fame so his collegiate um, um, you know, things that he accomplishments they those are those are helpful to him to sort of get into the Hall of Fame he's also obviously an MVP and was a key cog in a, a, on a team that was like one of the best teams of the 2000s, um, or early 2010s, I should say, along with Joe Kim Noah and, and uh, you know, those guys. Um, Luol Deng, Kirk Heinrich, that was just such a good team. Um, then you see what's happened to him since then, and, you know, this last couple years has been great for Derrick Rose. Um, if nothing else, though, his hobby, his hobby following, I believe, will always be really strong, and the reason is, you know, people, people like you know you, people like um, cura curation underscore cardboard, people who love Derrick Rose. He has a fan base that's really like passionate, and you know, there's a whole list of guys like Jay Will uh, Jason Williams, um, Detlef Schrempf, um, Tony Kukoc. Um, there are guys who, Sharif Abdurrahim, there's guys that like have, 
a real following, Keith Van Horn, guys that have a real following, but didn't necessarily have the NBA career that, that backed it up. Uh, Jason Williams is the main one that comes to my mind, though, because he has just incredible, an incredible following, um, you know, far greater than most Hall of Famers, but he won't sniff that, right? So uh, Derrick Rose will, will definitely be in that same class because he's so popular. Uh, Sean Kemp, um, those, those types of players. Uh, and lastly, Jones underscore uh, AF uh, says, best MJ auto under 50 bucks. Um, actually, I should read his whole post because it's not that it's not that simple. He says, um, he says, hello, I would love to hear your take on the best affordable 90s Michael Jordan inserts under $50. I recently saw this step up card. I was totally, it was totally new to me. It, uh, I like that, that card and it's less than 20 bucks on eBay. I can't help but wonder what else I'm missing out on. Some specifics about a term or set or something would be good for search engines. Search results are overwhelming for MJ. I'm a collect what you like guy, not interested in what I should buy, just interested in what your take is in discovering more options for myself. Five to 10 picks would be awesome. I love the show, keep up the work. So that's the longer version. And again, grateful for the good question, dude. It goes by AJ. Uh, Grateful for the question, AJ. So, um, I'm not always good at answering the exact question, um, but but I'll tell you what I what I'm thinking. You know, first thing I would say is that most cards that are of Jordan in that are that are under fifty dollars. Uh, there's just not a lot of those options out there anymore, especially if you want to find one that's um, that's not just like a base card. You know, most cards are 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 expensive, and so finding a key Jordan card that's under fifty dollars is probably not something that I'm great to, to talk to. But I would tell you what I would do um, if I was you know maybe um, collecting and like but was on a like a, a stricter budget. Um, here are some ideas. So if I'm going to buy Jordan cards, uh, rare or different types of Jordan cards, I want cards that are important or cool looking. I want something to be really different about them or significant. Um, if you go back to the late 80s, most of his raw uh, cards from the late 80s that are, um, you know, like random stickers and and base cards and like in the, into the early 90s, you know, the hoop stuff and the upper deck stuff, a lot of that stuff raw is still under $50. You know, I think about things like the holograms or the FLIR all-star cards um, from insert sets. Um, a lot of that stuff you can still find in that sort of realm. And I like those cards because they'll always be identifiable. People will always know what they are. They'll always remember when they came out. But they're, they're not rare cards. Um, getting them in specific grades sometimes can be rare. But um, you know that, that, is, that would be a really cool option. I would also look at, I always, I always mention this card, it's more, it's more than you're talking about, but I always mention the Intense uh, card out of Emotion from 1993 or 1994 because it's just such a good looking card. It's one of the best looking cards ever made and in a raw, as a raw card, I think you could still find one for maybe a little bit over $100. That's gonna be you know, more than two, twice what you were looking to spend, but I think that that card, if you're a, if you're a, I want to just get a really cool looking card, that to me is one of the coolest looking cards ever made. And it's not rare, but it's also not as common as a lot of the stuff that's out there. Um, the first Chrome base card is probably more than you want to spend, but it's a cool option. The first finest is, but the way that they green, even I can tell they green and I'm colorblind, I shouldn't be able to see that, but 
they just the the original finest base cards can get pretty funky. Um, the uh, the last Chrome Jordan Bulls card is cool because it's uh, it's not actually out of Chrome. It was out of regular tops, but that card is is really cool too. And that might be a little bit out of your price range at this point, um, but. Um, also, like, some of the graded cards, the really, like, well-known cards from the early 90s, like, I could, I could see you doing, like, a 1990 Hoops card that's graded, or a, um, you know, uh, one of the first holograms. Some of those cards are really cool looking, and um, if that's what your budget is and that's what you're looking for, I think that would be a great idea. Um, but... Uh, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's good, but that's that's what I would say to you. I've gone literally twice as long as I was planning on going, guys. The other thing that I wanted to just say real quick is there were a couple questions about the state of the hobby now in terms of like a downturn in prices. There's there are people who I believe were under the impression that cards would go up forever, and. Um, <sighs> There's just this big part of me that wants to just say to people like, you know, as you as you have experience in anything in life, you know, if you think it's too good to be true, it probably is. And if you jumped into the hobby in January of this year and you saw everything double in a month and you thought that was just going to happen every month, then this is a good moment in your life to like realize and learn something. You know, I don't know where card prices are going to go, guys. I have no idea. I don't know if things are going to go down or up. I, I know as I look at the graphs, the three graphs from BCF this month, you see big, big down arrows for this last, for this last four weeks. Um, and, you know, you saw giant, giant up arrows um, earlier this year. So you could ask a couple questions. You could say, do you think prices will get back to where they were? I have no idea. I don't know how anybody could predict, predict that. You know, do you think that they'll go down to below where, to where they were before? I don't know. There's no way to know that. The answer to both of those questions is it's totally possible. This is why you want to make sure that what you own are cards that you enjoy owning. Because, you know, like I have cards. I know I do, guys. I have cards that I know have decreased literally 50% in the last couple of months. I don't care. It doesn't impact me. I wasn't owning them because I wanted to just see appreciation. Um, I have these feelings every now and then, like, uh, dude, you should move this card. It's increased so much in value. And then I remember, like, I don't own that card just because of its potential to increase in value. I own that card because I like it. So, um, so, um, you know, I would just suggest that that you you that you really just really like don't fall for the hype of getting into things that are of no worth to you. Like, get into things that are of worth. Spend your time and your money and your effort on things that you enjoy. Don't let the people who are hyping certain things impact what you like. Um, and don't let, people, don't let people try to tell you that you're doing it wrong. You know, you can be somebody in this hobby who spends literally nothing and still just loves it. Or you can be somebody in this hobby who spends a ton who who doesn't end up having a good experience.
But my, my suggestion is that if you do spend your time in the right way, um, in, in, in doing things that you love, you will have a wonderful experience. And I, I hope that that's, um, you know, I hope that's meaningful to some of you guys. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, you learn some lessons in this process as we all are learning. And I hope you collect what you like. Um, but, uh, I'm grateful again that you joined me for today's, today's podcast way longer than I thought it would be. Um, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited for where the hobby's going. We're super excited to send out basketball card fanatic. Uh, the digital copy will release, uh, this Saturday, you know, that's four days away. And to those of you who are subscribers to the digital, you'll get it really soon. And I'm really glad to be able to send that to you guys. It, I can't tell you, it's one of the things I love most in this hobby is that that I have people reach out to me regularly now saying, hey, I'm really excited to get this next issue. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for all your work. You know, thank, Thanks for making the hobby a better place. I love that part of it. And I actually love getting my magazine too. And even though I've read each of the articles, even who knows how many times, because guys, the magazine is so much work. It takes so long to put it together. Um, but it is, I think it is making a difference. And, and I, I, if you get the chance to see it at your LCS this, this, uh, coming month, you know, or, um, you know, if you haven't gotten it before, just like, I would, even if you don't think you're a magazine guy, like give it a shot, see what we're creating. And I think that you'll find that it's an important part of, it could be an important part of your, your, uh, experience within the hobby. Um, all right, guys. Uh, thanks again uh, for joining. And uh, just add one last thing at the, at the end here, which is go Jazz. Uh, Mike Conley's out for, the, for game number one, but we're still just hoping that the Jazz can can you know can go all the way this year. We rarely have these opportunities where a team has, a, a, according to Vegas and all the pundits, like a real shot. So I'd hate to see an injury to our probably our third best player. Uh, cause us to, to go out early this year but we'll see what happens the Clippers are a great team and who knows if anybody can be, beat Brooklyn they just look unbeatable right now so all right thanks again guys and until, and until next time happy collecting <laughs>